Welcome back to the Mole Pigs podcast. Today our guest is William Poole. Also with me today are Boya. Hi. Georgios. Hi. And I'm also Will. William Poole received his BSc from Brown University in Biological Physics and is scheduled to complete his PhD in Computation and Neural Systems from Caltech shortly, co-advised by Eric Winfrey and Richard Murray. His interests involve developing mathematical and computational tools to understand how cells think and how to program cells. His work has spanned theory, computation, and experiment. William, hi. Hello. So your work has kind of spanned quite a few different topics. Could you maybe give us a brief overview of some of the sorts of things you've been doing? Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess I want to know everything, so I try to do everything, which is not always the best idea, but it certainly keeps me occupied. Um, I guess my background is fundamentally in physics and programming, computer science, and I've tried to apply that in various ways to understand and engineer biological systems. Um, This has included both bioinformatics types approaches and also more recently trying to use machine learning to engineer and reverse engineer biochemical networks in particular uh, by exploring mathematical similarities between biochemical models and machine learning models so we can try to exploit those similarities to do cool things. So this is your kind of um, chemical Boltzmann machine work, right? Is, is that what you're talking about with the machine learning? Th- that is one example. Um, in that work, I uh, related how certain implementations of machine learning algorithms could be built in theory by chemical systems. But I think more generally, my work is very inspired by what's been successful in machine learning and how we can apply that to synthetic and systems biology. So to elaborate a little bit, um, if you look at say 30 years ago, machine learning wasn't getting very far. What really happened was that we had large data sets, faster computers, and really good libraries of software that allowed machine learning engineers to explore topologies of different networks and actually test and understand sort of empirically as a science what things worked for machine learning and what things didn't. And we need to do something similar with biochemical systems to both understand them and engineer them. And that requires a mixture of theoretical tools and software tools, as well as large data sets. And I think you've been working a lot on the software tools side of things, working on software such as Biocompiler and Vivarium. Um, Sort of if you could just quickly tell us what those are. Yeah, so Biocompiler is um, inspired by these machine learning tools like PyTorch, um, which... And it allows you to basically compile or build large, complicated chemical models of different biochemical systems without, you know, really having to get into the nitty gritty specification of every single interaction. So it says things like, I have a gene and that gene can be transcribed and then translated. And if I tell Biocompiler that information, it will work out what all of the different chemical reactions should be. Um, And it does this in, I think, a kind of clever, different way. At least I think it's clever because I came up with it, Um, which is to think about models in sort of three terms. We have what's in the model, the components. We have the context of the model, which we call a mixture. And we have mechanisms, which are sort of the um, microscopic descriptions of how a given process occurs. And by mixing and matching components, mechanisms, and mixture context, we can compile a huge number of models 
that are very diverse or multiple variations of the same model that maybe have different um, assumptions in them. And I think you also asked about Vivarium. Um, Vivarium is a similar idea, but instead of compiling models, it's now more of a, uh, a simulator and it gives you the ability to link different simulators. So, you know, I've mentioned chemical reaction networks many times here because I work on them a lot. They're just one of the many ways we might simulate biochemical systems. Maybe you need mechanistic um, mechanical simulations to understand how cell membranes work or, you know, some sort of mechanical simulation of a DNA polymer. Vivarium lets you couple different simulators together in a seamless way and then simulates them and takes into account the scheduling and the updating, etc. So it sounds like, well, you've spoken a lot about chemical reaction network, and obviously that's one of the main focuses of your research, but also you're building tools, um, you're also, also you're building tools for synthetic biology, and I believe you also go into the wet lab every now and then um, and do some synthetic biology as well. So it seems like you're kind of straddling the interface between molecular programming and synthetic and systems biology. Like, would you agree with that? A hundred percent. I try to sit right in the middle. I think that molecular programming gives you tools for abstraction, um, which are necessary. I think if we want to understand biochemical systems holistically, I think that synthetic biology lets you engineer things. And um, it's often quoted that you don't understand something if you can't engineer them. I think Feynman said that. I, I am a believer in that notion. Um, but systems biology is really, you know, that's the context of where synthetic biology lives or where molecular programming is likely to be deployed. So if we don't understand the living organisms that we're working in and around, we're not going to be able to engineer anything that can work in those environments. So you can't, de you can't detangle these um, three areas in my mind. So you can't, you can't detangle them, but do you think, so do you think you can draw a boundary? as to where someone's research stops being molecular programming and starts being synthetic or systems biology? I mean, lots of people draw boundaries. I think that the best science happens in the middle. So have you, um, what kind of applications have arisen from your tooling so far? So Biocompiler and, and Vivarium, have they started to be used by others in any way? Um, yeah, many people have used Biocompiler, mostly sort of in the greater Caltech community, um, to model different biochemical circuits and various things ranging from, you know, E. coli in the gut to uh, cell extracts. Um, I know there was also some systems level biology models that came out of one of our classes that someone used um, around extracellular membrane proteins or something like that. Um, it was a little outside of the scope of things I know a lot about. Um, we are actively, you know, wanting to get more users and have invested a lot of time in uh, building educational materials so that people can learn to use this software tool and deploy it. But, you know, that takes time. Um, in terms of Vivarium, um, I've only recently been involved in Vivarium for the past, I don't know, six months. It's a much newer tool. It's only maybe a year old. It's being extensively used by the Covert Lab in um, Stanford, which does whole cell modeling. So... Um, I think they have released already a number of papers using Vivarium to model um, E. coli at a systems level uh, or even E. coli colonies. And I think that Vivarium has a lot more potential than just modeling whole cells. It could be used to model whole, or whole organisms or also to sort of link systems level biochemical models to individual molecular um, biophysical models. 
I just want to point out that I have been using Biocompiler um, on and off my own research since you gave a uh, tutorial for Buildercell back in late 2020. Um, and I guess what like, I guess what we want to ask is how did you actually uh, get involved in Buildercell? How did they uh, how did you get involved and get into a position where you were giving a uh, like a whole series of lectures about your tool? Uh, well, that wasn't just about my tool. There were a number of tools in those lecture series. Build a Cell started um, at, I mean, I think it was sort of a uh, thought child of Drew Endy and uh, Richard Murray and a couple other people. And the first meeting was at Caltech. And, you know, for me, it was pretty easy to just take my coffee and go into the room. And it's like, oh, these guys are kind of trying to do something cool. Um, which is, you know, building a cell from scratch. And it was a whole bunch of people bringing different perspectives to that. Um, it was really cool meeting the guys from the Craig Venture Institute who are doing all this minimal cell work. And these are some of the people who pioneered understanding how a lot of biochemical machinery worked 30 years ago and are now, you know, taking that deep experience to, to systems biology in a way that I think is phenomenal. Um, you know, there's also newer people in Build a Cell doing really cool things. Kate Adamala is doing fantastic work um, in building vesicles that interact. Um, and yeah, and I think if you, you know, as a systems biologist, it's very, very hard to always know that you're right. There's too much complexity, but when you can start sort of engineering the systems you're trying to understand, say by using cell extracts or proto cells, it allows you to validate the types of tools and techniques you want to apply to systems biology in a situation where you can actually really know that you're right. And I think that's, to me, sort of what's very powerful about Build-A-Cell. Um, for listeners who aren't aware, we, we have um, interviewed Kate Adamala too, so you can check out more of what William was saying in that episode. So would you say that Biocompiler and Viverium are kind of complementary tools that are very useful in, in this kind of approach because you can, say, use Biocompiler for the more low-level stuff and Viverium to look at the high-level overview of these systems? They're different. Vivarium is a simulator, and it's actually not even a simulator. It's a meta simulator. Vivarium is a series of wrappers that go around many different simulators. We have in the Murray Lab software called Bioscrape, which is our chemical reaction network simulator. That plugs into Vivarium. Biocompiler is not a simulator. It is a model compiler. So it generates the models for you. It's sort of like um, when you type Python code, that code is interpreted to become something your CPU can run. Biocompiler generates code that a simulator can run, but you don't have to write the code that a simulator needs. You write something much higher level, much simpler. Um, it's a compiler. So they are complementary, but they do very different things. So I haven't used Biocompiler before, um, and I know that there are some other software tools that is rule-based or some other softwares that uh, can simulate stochastic chemical systems. So I wonder, how is the tools that you are building different from other tools? Uh, I mean, Biocompiler is unique. As far as I know, there's really nothing quite like it, um, except for compilers. Like, I, again, the, the inspiration is these sort of machine learning libraries where people say, I want to have, you know, a layer, uh, this topology for a neural network, and it then, you know, compiles that into something that can run on your GPU. Um, these rule-based models are much more like chemical reaction network models. They're sort of ways of simulating things. And the rules give you a, a way of saying what happens next. 
that doesn't tell you like, oh, I have some, you know, organism, it's an E. coli, I put this gene into it, tell me all the rules that should happen, right? That's more of where biocompilers living is a much higher level description by having a large built library of validated models. So in systems biology and static biology, many, you know, people use models and there's tons of them published, but they're rarely reused. And Biocompiler tries to sort of re-implement those models so you could reuse stuff that already exists rather than programming it from scratch. So how do you choose? I, I, I mean, imagine that maybe there is a library of different models. And how do you pick? How does the software pick which model to use? You pick. So you tell the software, I want to use this model, and it will then compile using that model. And how do you pick? I mean, modeling is an art as much of a science. And I think part of the inspiration for building this software was so that people could explore different modeling choices more quickly. So in my own research, I'm interested in cell extracts. I think of them as sort of a pseudo living system. You take E. coli, you lyse them, you separate out all the DNA and, li and lipids and just keep sort of the proteins and cytosol. Um, and then you can put your own DNA back into that system and, and watch it run um, for a while. And so when you make these models of cell extract, it's not always clear what the right model is. And I found myself, you know, spending a lot of time playing with, you know, if I have three genes that talk and I want to make one change to how I model transcription, I have to make it three times. And I was like, oh, it'd be much easier if I could just make that change once. And what if I want to sort of do a combinatoric set of changes between transcription and translation and another process? Oh, well, now it becomes much more complicated to keep track of all the models. Biocompiler makes that easy. I just say, you know, loop through my three transcription mechanisms, loop through my three translation mechanisms, loop through my other mechanisms, try them all out. And then I can choose the model that makes the most sense based upon my experimental data or, you know, the complexity I'm looking for or the analytic tractability I'm looking for. How, how far can you go with Biocompiler to kind of like, say, tweaking these systems? Um... Like, like when you're talking about making changes at all these different levels, like, like what is the furthest you can go at this point? Or am I misunderstanding? I mean, if you're willing to write your own classes and mechanisms, you can go as far as you want. It's just an, is anything a CRM can represent, biocompiler can represent. Um, it's just a way of thinking about models as sort of, it's a way of factorizing models is really how I think about it, right? You have a CRN is a lot of reactions and species, but you can factor them. There's common motifs that appear over and over again. And so you can factor those as boxes. Those are what we call mechanisms. And you can then replace that box with a different box. Um, and you can then factor sets of mechanisms as sort of components. And and so you could, you know, if you're willing to write your own code, you can take this wherever you want. Um, it's a framework. We have a library that's really focused on E. coli synthetic biology because that's where the people who developed it, what we work in. But there's no reason that's the limit. Um, in fact, I've written grants to try to do this with plant biology, for instance. No one gave me the money, but maybe someday they will. Hmm. So, so, it seems, so it seems like in Biocompiler, there is this hierarchy of mixtures, components, mechanisms, um the mixtures i'm interested in how are how like first of all what mixtures are available and how is the user assured that they are say validated or realistic enough um like is my translation transcription system behaving realistically in this particular mixture well so the mixtures are sort of 
models that we have been using for many, many years to, in, to understand E. coli at various levels. These are the type of models people like Michael Elowitz use when he models his circuits. They're the type of models that have been published in textbooks um, and in seminal papers. Are they correct? No, no model's correct. All models are wrong. Um, are they good enough? Often, the real question I think to understand if a model is good enough is, does it explain the experimental data I observe? And we actually have other software in Bioscrape that does parameter inference. It's really sort of more of a link between Bioscrape, which is our CRN simulator, and this thing called MC, which is a, a Bayesian parameter inference package. And the way I think about this is, you know, if I really want to know if one model is better than the other, I should try to infer all of my unknown parameters from my data. And if one of the model both fits the data better, but also has highly inferable parameters, that's the, that's the best model. That's sort of the best I can do. On the other hand, if another model doesn't fit very well, um, even if I can infer the parameters, that's probably not very good. Or if a model doesn't fit very, or if a model fits very well, but the parameters are like way overfit, that's probably also not very good. So you can't think of a model, you know, by itself as right or wrong. It's really a model exists in a context. And that context is not only sort of the biophysical context, but it's also the context of the data you're using to validate that model. So you work um, quite a lot in theory, computation, and, and experiment in wet lab. Um, which would you say comes easier to you? And if you had to pick one for the rest of your career, which would it be? I'm not going to pick one for the rest of my career. I'm going to continue to do multiple things. Um, I mean, look, I'm a very good programmer, but programming all the time without strong theoretical skills is a great way to write bad code. Um, I think building tools without understanding what it's like to work in the wet lab and without understanding the needs of actual bioengineers or systems biologists is also you know a dead end you really need to work closely with the people who are going to use your tools you can't just build you know tools that aren't helpful if i built thor's hammer and then realized no one could lift it that wouldn't be useful for anyone to hammer in a nail which is what people really want to do um you know theory i think is super fun um, but theory has the same sort of problems that you know if i do esoteric you know, ivory tower theory that doesn't even relate to the types of measurements people are taking in the lab, my theory is not very useful. Similarly, um, if my theory is too complicated that no one else can manage to handle or understand it, it's also perhaps not very useful. Um, so I really want to think about theory in terms of, you know, what's theory that is practical and applied theory? Um, math is very, very powerful. Physics is very, very powerful. Um, but when you try to apply these ideas to complex systems, often the simpler ideas are the ones that really stick because when you start scaling them and mixing and matching them in a combinatoric number of ways, you can't handle anything too complicated as your underlying piece. You have to use simpler pieces because the complexity just comes from the scale. So um, tell us a little bit about the theory work that you have working on. Well, so I'm really excited about a new project. This is a follow-up of the chemical bolts and machine work. Um, the working title of the paper is Detailed Balanced Chemical Reaction Networks Are Generalized Boltzmann Machines. So it sounds quite similar. But what we've really done is we've combined ideas from information theory, statistical physics, machine learning, chemical reaction network theory to show that a broad class of biophysical systems, detailed balanced chemical reaction networks, and these are things that molecular biologists work with every day. They're binding and unbinding systems. They're um, diffusive systems. They're systems that are not driven 
by any energy forces um, so or any chemical potential. So for example, if you transcription and translation are not detailed balance because ATP um, is driving those systems as a fuel molecule. But in many systems, um, again, I always say binding and unbinding reactions when things bind together and then unbinds um, are detailed balance. They're very common. They underlie many components um, that are driven as well. And what we've shown is that this large class of biochemical networks is deeply similar to a large class of machine learning algorithms of generative models. And by sort of taking this math in effect and saying we can use ideas of inference and generative models from machine learning to understand what's happening in biochemistry. And we can even take that a step further and ask, can biochemistry learn the way a machine learning model does? And the answer is yes, it can. And we can build models of biochemical systems that are not particularly complicated. They're things you could implement in a lab and certainly things that could evolve that learn and adapt in a way that is exactly the way machine learning algorithms um, or some types of machine learning algorithms learn and adapt. What, what would you like to see come out of this? Like, do you think this is a good way to do a neural network or is it kind of more broad than that? What kind of systems might we use this kind of framework for? It's not a neural network. It's different. It's a generative model. So it's, if you're familiar with graphical models or bolt machines, that's really the model. Um, so it's a probabilistic model that um, can generate and respond to the environment. Uh, I think that, you know, these models are, are, are very powerful. They're hard to train um, in silico, but they're also models that, you know, a lot of neuroscientists think that generative models are sort of underlying many functions of the brain. So I think that thinking about these models as, as a way biochemistry or biology in general computes will be very fruitful for understanding how things work in the real world. Um, certainly, if we could implement these models in silico, that would be cool. And one possible thing that this paper we're working on might do is help people invent new machine learning algorithms in silico. I think it might also help us interpret existing biochemical motifs and functionality, um, not you know, not as a program or not as a conventional logic program, but instead as a sort of machine learning generative model program. And if we start thinking about the way biochemistry functions as a generative model, as a machine learning algorithm, I think that might be fruitful for understanding how it works, why it works, how it breaks, and how to fix it. So how far do you think the theory work you have been working on and you plan to work on uh, far from the real world implementation? Do you think it's very close or there are some other um, obstacles on the way? Um, I mean, we could go into the lab right now and build simple versions of the theory I'm working on. Um, the problem is that they wouldn't be very interesting. Uh, to, uh, they, they wouldn't be interesting because what the theory really relies upon is small molecular counts. So, and I think this is actually kind of deep, but, and, and not a proof, I'm waving my hands here a little bit, um, but we have some strong anecdotal evidence that somehow by having low copy number, like one or two molecules in a volume, you can actually do more sophisticated computations than if you have 100,000 molecules in a volume or Avogadro's number of molecules. And I think this is really interesting because it sort of 
um, A tells you a good place to go experimentally, we should be working with small volumes um, and low copy number. That's hard right now. Um, people can do it, but it's challenging. But it also tells something about biology. You know, it's always been amazing to me that there's one copy of your genome or two copies in every single cell. Why two? Why not 10? Right? Well, maybe there's some deep physics going on that actually makes two a better number than 10. And um, I can't prove that right now, but it's definitely a hypothesis and a conjecture that I think would be really worth exploring. Yeah, I think that would be interesting to explore in the context of like, uh, I think the lacopron is a classic example of where you get maybe on the order of 10 molecules of um, maybe, George, do you remember I'm not sure on the exact copy number, but there are tons of bacterial systems which exploit like low one to two or sub sub single molecule level um, like numbers just to perform. But I, I wanted to ask, like, can you give any intuition behind why um, the low copy number, like a, why a low copy number system might be able to do more complicated computation? Yeah, actually, here's here's one using the LAC operon. So if you look at the LAC operon, um, it has three LAC repressor binding sites. And so the LAC repressor tetramer combined to any of those three sites. And more importantly, is that you can have the LAC tetramer can cause looping between the DNA. So if you have three sites, there are three possible loops you can form. And two of these three loops repress transcription really strongly. Now let's imagine that I had a bunch of, I imagine I have a hundred copies of this gene, of this operon, and I can form these three different loops or no loops. Well, statistically, I'm going to have a mixture of things where some things are looped in one confirmation one, some are in confirmation two, some are in confirmation three, and some are unlooped. And that means I'm going to get a mixture of transcribable genes and untranscribable genes. While if I only have one copy, I can really say, you know, that one copy, or if I have two copies, there, you know, two out of the three states are likely to be in the in the turned off loop. And that will in somehow more tightly regulate my system. In in the world of physics, this is really an entropic effect. We're seeing that when you have sort of combinatoric sets of states, um, Entropy is going to drive you to explore some of those combinations, and but you really might want to restrict the combinations you can explore at any given time. And by restricting the, the state space you can explore, restricting the possibilities, you can restrict the functions that will occur. And that makes your computations more powerful because not everything is happening all the time. Some things happen conditioned upon some events. How do you think this might interact? So you mentioned, for example, low copy number of genomes. But there are some scenarios where you have uh, larger copy numbers, like plasmids in bacteria, or um, when mitochondria fuse into networks and yeah, plants. Um, do you think you, this this idea might have be able to explain that as well? Well, I mean, mitochondria do fuse into networks, but typically there's one small volume with one mitochondria genome, or maybe a couple. Um, I think it's more interesting to ask, you know, there's lots of bacteria out there, but no one's ever seen a bacteria that only has plasmids. Why is that? Well, that, I mean, to me, that is very suggestive that maybe there's something not as good about plasmids. Plasmids are great for sharing information between bacteria species, so there might be some pressure to have some plasmids. 
But underlying the whole diversity of bacteria out there or viruses, I've never heard of a multi-genomic organism. Um, that's not completely true. I have. There are some plants that are sort of like giant single cells, some protists that have many genomes, but they're spatially isolated. Each copy of that genome is going to be fairly far away from other ones. So I've never heard of like a stack of genomes that are all co-inhabitating the same space. Um, I would love to hear about it. That would be a fascinating life form. There's one thing I have heard of, but I don't think it quite meets that definition, which is um, trypanosomes have, uh, I believe it's called a kinetoplast, which is this kind of chainmail genome sort of thing. I think it is the mitochondrial genome, and it's split into a bunch of these rings which are catenated together in some complicated way, but it's not many copies of the same thing, so I, I don't think it it is an exception to what you're talking about. Well, and again, if, if, if you have some things that are a higher copy number, that might be okay. So like plasmids are not really doing a lot of sophisticated circuitry in bacteria, except when synthetic biologists go, you know, build logic circuits on plasmids, which don't work as well as genomically integrated ones. Typically what plasmids are doing is they're just providing some protein of interest. And that's very different from say the logic underlying how you run a, a bacterial system which is, seems to be genomically integrated for the most part. Well, it's kind of a different question. Um, when you went to, uh, to start your degree in, in biological physics, or, or maybe before, um, had you heard of molecular programming? When, when did you, or, or synthetic biology, when did this become kind of the thing you wanted to do? That's a that's a great question. So when I started my undergraduate degree, I was interested sort of in physics. And I liked biology. And there was like a biological physics freshman seminar, which I took and I thought was cool because the math was hard. But it wasn't about like quantum particle physics that really have no bearing to my life. It's like, this is how things in my body function. And here's some really hard math I could do. I love doing hard math. And I kind of kept going down that track and just saying that like, oh, there's so much complexity here and so many unexplored questions. And they're different and distinct from what sort of other people in physics were doing. And honestly, they required just as much, they were just as challenging in many ways, but weren't as headache inducing to me. Like I was always like fed up with electrons and boxes. Like I don't care about electrons and boxes. There are no electrons and boxes really. Um, I was much more interested in like protein folding. That's like, yeah, there's lots of proteins and they're all folding. That's fascinating and way harder in some ways. Um, so I sort of kept getting more and more drawn into biology. And I realized that computers were part of the way we could solve these problems. When you're dealing with complexity, you couldn't, you could write down the physics, you know, the laws of physics that explain biology are fairly well understood, but everything happens when you mix and match them in complicated systems. And that requires computers to really handle. Um, so, you know, my undergrad, I did some polymer physics and some simulations and experiments around sort of single strands of DNA and what they might do and push and poke them in different ways. Then I went on to say, you know, I really want to understand networks. And it's actually a professor, Gary Wessel, who inspired me to the notion of synthetic biology. He had a class at Brown that I took, which was fantastic. It was really just sort of a lit review course. Um, but it was opened my eyes to sort of, oh, we can build cool things. And on the other hand, another professor, um, Tom Powers at Brown, recommended I read Yuri Allon's book um, on, what is it, uh, Design Principles of 
biology or something like that um on circuits great book i'm butchering the title but um uh and i read that and i was like oh we can use you know math to understand these circuits and then we can program them and it seems like very very cool i went on to do some bioinformatics after graduating because i wasn't sure if i wanted to go to grad school or what um you know, I, I knew a lot of statistics and coding. I was at Institute for Systems Biology doing cancer research for a few years. And I really saw that, you know, the, the big data approach was not, we're not ready for it because we have too many holes in our mechanistic understanding. And so then when I was looking at grad schools, I was really trying to find a sweet spot in the middle of sort of this big data systems biology, bioinformatics world, and the sort of molecular biophysics. And that's what led me to molecular programming, which sort of sits right in the middle. Um, and I'm very much drawn to, you know, still getting to use all the physics I like and learns, still getting to write code and solve hard math problems, but also, you know, help build things that exist. And do you think um, back when you were, say, 10 or 12, would it be a surprise to uh, young William to see where you are now? Like, would you be at that age just thinking, I'm going to be a physicist? Or, or what, what was your view on your future then? I mean, I love Jurassic Park. So I think I would have been pretty down to like, you know, doing some serious molecular engineering and building some dinosaurs or very small dinosaurs, the case may be. Um, okay, so yeah, we've covered your theoretical and computational work. Um, but you've mentioned a couple of times your interest in E. coli or, or cell-free extracts of E. coli. Could you tell us a bit about what your interest in that space is? Yeah. So, I mean, I, as I mentioned, I think a lot of it's sort of practical. I think that doing theory and computation without any notion of how a wet lab works is detrimental to my success. Um, so cell extracts are nice because you can do sort of high throughput experiments and they don't do things like die on you or evolve away your genes that you put into them because they're not alive. So that makes them sort of a stripped down version. At the same time, they're more complicated than the DNA nanotech you guys hear a lot about on this podcast, I'm sure, because they're closer to being alive. They once were alive. It's sort of once someone once described cell extracts to me as necromancy. And I kind of love that because we're, we're taking dead things and we're reanimating it in order to understand the living um, or to engineer the living, um, which is a little bit of an odd perspective. Um, but fundamentally, you know, I don't think cell extracts are necessarily that useful. I think they're a great platform to test ideas on, um, sort of like a hydrogen atom, but less so. Um, I also think that, you know, they, they, oh, they sort of explain a lot of the problems we have in biology, which is complexity, dealing with unknowns. And they've got to me at least interested in uh, metabolism, which I think is one of the things that differentiates uh, biological computation from other forms of computation is that biological computation can interact with matter. It can produce things and degrade things. And I see it as a technology not really taking over what computers are doing, but rather taking over what static objects in our lives are doing and imbibing them with computational powers and regenerative powers. Um, and so to me, that's really interesting. And you have to start with the basics of like, how does metabolism work? How can you produce and degrade things? How does fuel flow through living systems? And we barely understand that with cell extracts. So I think that trying to do that at a higher scale is going to be harder until we can do it at like the simplest possible, not even a live scale. So I think um, 
kind of the more short or medium term application you're kind of hinting at is um, with the use of metabolic engineering is this notion of green economy. But I want to start with um, what you're talking about of imbuing static matter with the ability to think and and compute. What's your long-term vision for what this kind of technology and, and these ideas will bring to the world? I can put my nerd hat back on and talk about um, elves and their tree houses and say that it would be really great if we could plant a seed and would grow into a living house for us. And I don't think that's actually impossible. I think that, that is scientifically a reasonable dream to have in like a couple centuries. And so, you know, what does it take to lay the foundation for that? Well, we really have to understand how to program from a simple set of genetic instructions, geometry and the um, metabolic or uh, energy mechanisms inside whatever thing we're trying to build is. And, and that's molecular programming. So my dream is sort of to c- couple all of these areas. Hmm. And what would, um, if, if you could have one thing from, say, a thousand years down the line, what, whatever molecular programming brings us, you know, whether it be tree houses or um regenerative health or, or anything what what's the most imaginative and thing that you can think of that you'd want to have right now i want to have right now i mean i'm really as you hinted at i'm really um, concerned about climate change and so i think that if we could have uh living materials that sequestered carbon for all of our materials that we use for everything from concrete to steel to houses to wood, which was all alive and all growing and self-sustaining and sequestering carbon, that would be fantastic. And, you know, there's, it's, I don't think it's far-fetched in the long term, like, you know, thousands of years that we will get there, that we can learn how to live, engineer and cohabitate this planet by using living organisms to build a habitat for our species that is not destructive, right? But that requires us to not just mesh our lives with living organisms the way, you know, by having preserves of, you know, wilderness and then human cities. We have to go a step further and enmesh life into our very infrastructure. I guess you could view it as re-terraforming the earth. Uh, yeah, exactly. So w- how might we get to that point? What's the first step in, in building this future? I mean, there's lots of first steps. I think there's no shortage of first steps. One of them is understanding how to program with biomolecules. Another one is understanding how to, how, um, you know, developmental biology and how pattern formation can work from a single seed. Um, A third is understanding, you know, how to program the metabolism and energy so that the products we need as humans can be produced from non-petroleum sources. Um, there's, there's endless possibilities of first steps we can take. So like you're co-supervised by Eric Winfrey and uh, Richard Murray, two like quite titanic individuals, like in a one in kind of the molecular programming space and the other in control theory and synthetic biology. What's it like being supervised by these kinds of people? Do you get much face time or do you kind of interact more with their postdocs and other graduate students? Yeah. And I, I suppose the um, 
like working in kind of these large like groups how has that sh- like changed your graduate school experience well being co-advised means you get twice as many meetings so that definitely is has its disadvantages um you know my projects are fairly influenced by each other but i work on separate projects with each faculty eric has been a fantastic advisor in terms of uh hammering theory into me in a way of doing it more rigorously which is great um he also runs a very small group right now i think there are two graduate students in his group and no postdocs um in the past it was as big as maybe five or six people but he works more broadly in a group of other researchers at Caltech including Lulu and um Paul Paul Rothman and Lulu uh, Chen and um so that gives sort of a, a bigger group there in general and what i like about that sort of supergroup they call it, the DNA supergroup is that there are experimentalists and theorists from very diverse backgrounds ranging from biochemists to computer scientists to renegade physicists like me um who are all working together and learning to speak each other's languages and i think that is very very fruitful for collaboration and understanding um what other people need and and making your research more accessible um richard's lab is i think a little bit more of a traditional lab with you know quite a few postdocs quite a few grad students mostly bioengineers but occasionally there'll be a control theorist or someone like me um coming in from the side and i also really like that i get to work with more traditional bioengineers doing more traditional work um i think that's super important um and you know richard and eric have totally different styles eric will sit down with you in a room for 4 hours we just talked yesterday about this paper for a very long time and we hammer out math uh richard um will not do that he's way too busy um i hear he has robot versions of himself that way he can take care of all of his commitments because it's amazing what all the things he does um but he also gives you know he will give you feedback on every single paper you want to publish within a couple of days it's f- fantastic but it won't be the type of like i'm going to help you hammer out your math feedback it's going to be much more practical feedback about like here are things that you know will make this more understandable to someone who doesn't have your math background so you should work on that um how did you end up with two supervisors was it a case of kind of you couldn't pick between two fields or? well i wanted to do multiple things um so when i was talking to eric about joining his lab he wanted me to do certain experiments and i was not terribly interested in doing dna nanotech experiments um no offense you guys but i find them sometimes a little boring um it's not really uh i found them more interesting as i've gotten to understand the nuances better and i understand why people do them now but as a first year grad student i was not super i was wanting to be closer to biology um same time i was talking to richard and he um was about to go on a sabbatical and he was not willing to take new grad students unless they were co-advised and and i didn't really want to join eric's lab without having closer proximity to experimentalists who could help train me to do the experiments I wanted to do which Richard's lab provided so it worked out very nicely that I could both get the experimental support I wanted at the time there was one experimental postdoc in Eric's lab a uh, Chris Stachuk who's now at the UW really talented but you know I was like he's a postdoc he's going to be leaving within a year that was wrong he spent a little bit more time than that but um you know I was I didn't want to wind up being the only experimentalist in that group um and you know Richard didn't want to take me if I wasn't co-advised so it worked out very well. So going back to the synthetic biology applications and kind of the green economy and adding lots of carbon sequestration into the products around us um and the way we manufacture I I guess this starts to bring 
into more focus the idea of regulation, biosafety, bioethics, which I think the field of synthetic biology has taken a strong stance on from early on. I think that it's something which they, they focus on a lot. But do you think we're ready for kind of these widespread applications? Do you think there are any concerns we should have or or, or should we kind of go as soon as possible to trying to fix climate change with synthetic biology? Well, I don't think we can fix climate change with synthetic biology very soon. So I think we have time to work on these answers. I do not think we should dodge the regulation and ethics bullet by just saying climate change is more important. I think we should absolutely be having these conversations regularly and consistently and very carefully. Um, That said, I also think there's lots of inefficiencies in the system. So right now, at least in the United States, there's three different government organizations that claim control over GMOs in different contexts. And there's no legislation about how GMOs are regulated from the federal government. That's a problem because that means there's no consistency and you can't bring new technologies to market, which is what we need. So that has to be somewhere between, um, you know, the laissez-faire world that is most of tech and the incredibly tightly controlled world that is medicine. I think synthetic biology, depending upon the application, will you know be somewhere in in that range, but presumably much more controlled than tech. But if you're if we're not eating it, if we're not inducing it and putting it into the wild, or ourselves, um, less controlled than medicine. And right now, it's probably neither here nor there. I think was it briefly mentioned that you're nearing the end of your PhD. Hopefully. What's next for you? Uh, Good question. I ask myself that. I'm talking (laughs) to companies. I'm talking to professors. um, Some of it will depend upon where my wife wants to go with me. Um, You said you're talking to companies, so you're not committed to academia. Not necessarily. Um, I mean, I think that part of the problem is that for what I want to do, we need a lot of data. And, you know, you mentioned what my wet lab work is. Part of my wet lab work was trying to collect a data set big enough to use for ML. Didn't work. I spent $20,000. Was not big enough. Not even close. And, you know, and this was the simplest data I could imagine. Metabolomics on cell extracts. Who has the resources to really collect huge amounts of data that we can actually try to, to do things? It's mostly industry. So there's definitely, I'm definitely interested in having access to that type of data. And that probably will require industry connections in the long run. Um, I am perhaps, uh, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, I'm optimistic, but perhaps unfoundedly so, that it's possible to, to bridge academic and private sector to some extent back and forth if you play your cards right. And you definitely see this happening in the computer science world um, a little bit in bioengineering and synthetic biology, but again, these areas are newer, so it's unclear how well that will work. But that is sort of, I think, the track I would like to be on because scale comes from private sector and government, but mostly private sector, but the real research is still happening in in um, academia for now. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I want to take back my shock at, the, like, uh, at you considering leaving academia. I think that needs to be, I, I think that's something that needs to be normalized, that uh, there is good, like, that you can do good research outside of academia. And I think you just highlighted, like, one of those things is, like, industry has, can have way more resources than the average academic lab to undertake massive projects. 
Um, and so you said like you're considering industry. Do you also consider maybe the startup route doing everything, like just do it yourself, get the funding yourself? Well, the companies I would join are mostly going to be startup type companies, but I don't want to be a fundraiser CEO. I want to do the science. Mm. So at least at this point in my career, I'm not very interested in being a founder. That sounds like a lot of schmoozing. Um, (laughs) I want to do math and not talk to people. Um, But to your point about sort of scale, I think this is something that has bothered me a lot about synthetic biology and biology in general, um, is that most labs work as these isolated little kingdoms with their, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, maybe a million if it's a well-funded lab, um, up to a dozen or two dozen people, and they do what they can. And and we're hitting a, a, a barrier, I think, in what we can do. And you look at, you know, grad students will now spend six years on one little circuit that is the next, you know, one step forward for synthetic biology or, or six years on the next piece of, you know, the a DNA circuit that's less leaky or 10 times bigger than the last one. And, and then it's never really reused again exactly. We really need to start a collaborative type of academic endeavor to really engineer biochemical systems that will require working in much larger groups um, and in, in a totally different way and using much more money in a collaborative way. And I think physicists have this down with things like the LHC, where they come together and spend billions of dollars and accomplish incredible things and all benefit from it. We need to do that in synthetic biology and systems biology to really move to the next level in academia. And I would love to see um, academics come together and form giant collaborations and get $100 million to do something out of this world. That would be cool. Maybe we could build a cell. Um, we could. And one of the exercises that build a cell was how much will it cost and how long will it take? And I think we said, you know, one to $10 billion over 10 years and we could do it. But that type of money is not flowing in single pots. It's going to lots of little pots and there's no centralization to really make this happen um, as a community. And when we do centralize, the um, the academic credit is all about the first and last authors on these papers. So a whole bunch of people in the middle are screwed and that needs to change. We need to change how we give credit so we can work in big groups and accomplish bigger things. I think we're seeing things like that begin to emerge. For instance, in, in London and Edinburgh, there are these DNA bio foundries where you can on like you can at a huge scale, well, relatively large scale, synthesize loads of unique genetic circuits and screen them. I wonder if there's anything like that in the US, but I wonder what do you think needs to change in academia for us to kind of come together and do these international multi-billion dollar LHC equivalent projects? How do we convince uh, academics and also funding bodies? I mean, that's, I don't know how to convince them or else I would be out trying to do that and getting (laughs) money because that would be cool. Um, I think funding bodies, if academics said we want to do it this way, they would give the money that way. The funding bodies usually listen to the academics pretty closely. Um, It's about getting academics to agree to it and to agree to working together and to breaking their traditions around some, you know, tenure traditions and other traditions around uh, authorship. Um, in the U.S. and the NIH, we've done some work like this. The Cancer Genome Atlas, where I did bioinformatics, is a, you know, $100 million, $200 million collaboration between many hospitals and labs and data centers. Um, as an example, I think of a six, of a of at least an organizational success story. I'm not sure if they did a lot of, learned a lot from that, but um, 
certainly it was a lot of people and a lot of money working together. Uh, the you know the biofoundries in I know many people at the biofoundry at Imperial, um, uh, Paul Fremont's group in particular, and you know that's not even the scale. There you might have you know a little bit more money and some more robots, but there's not technicians operating those robots for you. You still have to learn if you're a grad student how to use all the robots yourself. It's not really the type of collaboration that we need where we have you know. I can come in as someone who can help build models really, really quickly and well, and then work with someone who can do cloning with a robot who's super specialized in that, and then, you know, build a hundred thousand constructs because we have, you know, everything's all there for us. It's not really that easy. And and there's not money for it because that even would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars of reagents and things to make that happen and time, you know, getting lab techs and et cetera. And that money doesn't exist, even though there's some robots. Do you, do you think there's like a cultural tipping point where you, you can envision a certain point at which the field would transition to being able to do these large projects? Like what is it about the field of physics that allowed things like the LHC to come about that isn't currently a property of the biological community? I was just asking uh, my great uncle about this, who is a physicist. He, um, you know, is 80 something now. Um, his work is on neutrinos, so he was part of the neutrino um, detectors in Japan under the mines. These are, you know, hundred million dollar collaborations across huge international groups. And he said the reason why physics does this is because they all learned how to do it working on the Manhattan Project during World War II. And he was trained by someone who worked on the Manhattan Project, and you know, all of his contemporaries were trained by people who, you know, worked in this giant scale run by the government. I guess almost a hundred years ago now. Um, 90 years ago. And that's how they learned to do this. And after that happened, they had this success story that if we come together and work, we can do uh, world shattering experiments. And, and they took that and kept running with it. That's never really happened in biology. But it should for climate change. The human genome? Project? The human genome project. Yeah, I mean, I think that like the ISB where I work was born um, out of the Human Genome Project as an example in Seattle. Um, it's run by Lee Hood, who was one of the main players in that. And they're trying, but again, it's the the, the majority of biologists and um, aren't, aren't on board with that, right? They're working in their own little labs. And it would require a cultural shift where the majority of biologists would have to start working in these collaborations for the funding industries and for the tenure eight, you know, committees of universities to really change how they evaluate these things. And until that happens, you know, if I can be middle author on a hundred papers, I'm not going anywhere in biology or bioengineering. In physics, that might take you very, very far if they're the right papers. And if you're known in the field for being a good guy who can, or girl who can do great work. So what's your um, dream biological equivalence to the LHC or the space station? Um, let's say you had the funding and the institutions, you know, and they gave you several billion dollars and tens of thousands of researchers. What's our best use of that? I would build a synthetic cell is the first thing I would start with. Hmm. I, would, I would do it in a way where we know everything that's happening, have models of it, can improve upon it reverse engineer it, re-engineer it, make it modular, make it. And then, then I would take that and make that into a synthetic multicellular something. 
and I would just go from there. And I think once we have that foundation of one cell, you know, from there, all of life evolved. Um, it will not be hard to engineer that, but we have to start with something that we really understand to, in order to add more and more complexity. Is there an argument to be made that in biology, that, and this might be controversial, but that in biology, the breadth of questions you can ask and the breadth of research you can do is maybe larger than in physics? Like, okay, ignoring kind of macroscopic physics, if you're interested in fundamental physics, there's... I, I would say a narrower set of questions you can ask. Like if you're interested in particle physics, then you're trying to look for exceptions to the standard model um, is probably the most likely thing you want to do. Or if you're interested in cosmology, you might be looking at uh, kind of ground unification theories. I, I feel like in biology, there's just so many more questions you can ask that is it harder to get the entire community or even a large subset of that community to come together for one project when they might have their own ideas of what they want to do? Um, I mean, I think a lot of biologists would agree that there are many questions you can ask and even more ways you can answer them experimentally as part of the problem. Like the LHC is is the only, you know, particle accelerators are the main tool that we have for theoretical particle physics because we need high energies um, and that's how we can get them. You know, but at the same time, like if you look at all of the cool quantum stuff, quantum topological phases and that crazy stuff that happens on the benchtop. And some really cool physics is happening, that I think is uh, honestly probably going to be more useful in the short term than anything we're doing with particle physics. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that it's the questions. I really think it's a mentality thing. And if you look at something like the LHC or LIGO, they have to invent new devices and, you know, the, the solid state physics people are involved in the devicing for these things and the detectors. When you actually go towards a really lofty goal, it's going to wind up sweeping the whole field with it, provided that um, the goal is hard enough. If the goal is really leaving out a lot of people, that probably means your goal is not lofty enough. So you have mentioned that um, you like to consider industry because of the money and scale and maybe credit. And other than this, is there any other um, reasons you would prefer industry? Or do you see any other difference for a person who do not know the uh, difference between industry and academia? I don't know the difference. I've never been in industry. Um, I think that for me, the most important thing about what I do personally is that I'm working with a bunch of smart people doing cool stuff. And, and I care about the types of projects I work on and what I'm doing day to day a lot. So, you know, even if you pay me really, really well in industry, if I end up doing a bunch of work that makes me miserable, I'm not going to have a lot of fun. Same with academia. Even if I you know, have the most cushy tenure track or tenure professorship, but I have to do a bunch of work that I don't find interesting, I don't want to be doing that. Um, or working with people I don't like. So I'd rather work with a group of people I really like on a project that I find challenging and rewarding than anything else. Um, and that could be industry or academia. And I think it's all about the people. Thank you so much for joining us, William. Stay tuned to our newsletter for details on our next podcast episodes. Thanks for listening.